0: you're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. With the support of listeners and guests, we want to find out what's going well and what really requires improvement. My name is Tom, and in today's episode, I'm joined by our co-host, Lee. Hi, Lee. Hello. Hello. And we have a a very special kind of international themed episode today. We've interviewed uh, Mohammed Tamimi from the Hebron International Resources Network, who does some fantastic work in the occupied West Bank. Um, So uh, we'll have a quick introduction and then we'll um, conduct the interview and me and Lee will have a discussion following the interview. Um, So... Our connection with Mohammed and um, Hearn and the work Hearn does in the West Bank, Um, I suppose it has quite a a long history. Our union, the National Education Union, and um, its legacy union before that, the National Union of Teachers, the NUT, has had quite a a solid um, tradition of of international solidarity, particularly with with the Palestinian people. We um, frequently send delegations of educators out to the West Bank to meet with educators and trade unionists. There. Um, so that's kind of our broader um, history we have um, between the National Education Union and Palestine. More specifically to us in the southwest, um, 2020 has been, obviously for all of us, a very, very difficult year. It was a very difficult year for Bristol National Education Union because we lost one of our, our great leaders, one of our stalwarts, uh, Nina Franklin, who was the former um, division secretary of Bristol NUT for an incredibly long time. Um, she was a fantastic anti-racism campaigner and really kind of lived and breathed the spirit of international solidarity as well. Um, she went on numerous delegation visits to Palestine and was a staunch defender of the Palestinian people. So it was a, a great a great loss to us. Um, to our movement more generally, to to her trade union, to the Labour Party uh, that we lost Nina this year. Um, so as a result of that, um, a few of us in in her union and in her in her party in her CLP set up a fund called the Nina Franklin Fund, uh, Bristol Palestine Education Link, and it's going to be very straightforward. Uh, we're going to aim through our union branches and through our other connections and through fundraising efforts, uh, raise as much money as possible and direct it towards. Towards uh, Mohammed's organisation, the Hebron International Resources Network. So, our interview today, very, very fortunate to be interviewing Mohammed Tamimi. Fantastic. Okay, so um, we'll get started. Um, I think we should just dive straight in. So, um, should I just, by by way of. um, by way of starting, should we just get you to introduce yourself to start off with Mohammed?
1: Okay, so the name is Mohammed Tamimi. Uh, I am the director of an organization that is based in, in uh, the West Bank city of Hebron called the Hebron International uh, Resource Network. The organization has been um, active on the ground since the year 2002 but became an official organization uh, in 2010. Now our main purpose is the, uh, to support the Palestinian steadfastness in areas that are classified as area C. Um, in in the West Bank, uh, which is about 60% of the the West Bank is classified as Area C. And this is where most of the Israeli violations uh, are taking place in terms of uh, house demolitions, in terms of uh, settler attacks, in terms of uh, administrative detentions. Um, You know, all of the practices of the occupation, we see them that are uh, centered in, in these areas. Um, so we try as much as possible to uh, to help the Palestinians who are living in these areas to kind of a face off to the uh, to to such policies uh, through having to provide them with um, you know uh, the uh, a dignified life. Um, sometimes we uh, build um, schools, kindergartens, provide uh, uh, water assistance, uh, build. Um, Uh, water systems, uh, provide solar panels, you know, a number of interventions that will make the life of the Palestinians in these areas a little bit easier.
0: Mm, Okay, thank you. Could you talk a bit more about... um specifically about the areas um, Hebron International Resources Network um, operates, so kind of the areas where you're most active um, maybe a bit about the history of these areas
1: Well um, we we work uh, mostly in uh, Bethlehem and Hebron uh, governorates a large part of Hebron city uh, Hebron governorate as well as uh, Bethlehem are classified as area C where Again, you can see the Israeli policies, they're uh, much more on the ground. For example, Bethlehem uh, governorate, you have only 13% of uh, Bethlehem is under the Palestinian authority control. So the rest of uh, like the um, 87% is under Israeli control. And there you have a lot of uh, settlement expansions, you have a lot of uh, outposts, you have uh, much more restriction on, on uh, Palestinian villages that are um, located in area C. Uh, and we saw that yesterday, we have about like 400 uh, olive trees that were uh, uprooted by the settlers in, uh, in Bethlehem, north of, of uh, sorry, west, east of Bethlehem, uh, here in, in Hebron. We have, as we speak right now, there is settlers that are accompanied by the Israeli army in the area of Masafriyatta, are are going into hamlets and trying to cause havoc as much as as they can without any, with, with full impunity for both the settlers and the uh, and uh, and the army so that does have a, a very big negative impact on the Palestinian population uh, living in these areas with i think with the calculated uh, effort so that they can that the israeli army or the occupation, will push the Palestinians out of those areas, Area C, to go into areas that are uh, under the Palestinian authority, um, so that they will have less and less population in Area C, which enable them, make it a little bit easier for them to actually to annex these areas uh, down the road uh, when uh, when annexation was, is put on the table once again. So what we are trying to do, we are trying to actually to offset that, to kind of a Go against that current by providing essential services to the Palestinian residents there. That will make them more uh, um, prone to actually to stay there. They they have the desire. They have the the kind of a the kind of a nationalistic spirit that no, this is my land, and I'm not moving out of there. But we are just making it a little bit easier for them to actually to stay in in those areas.
0: Mm. Thank you, Mohammed could you talk a bit more then about um, I suppose the history and the background of um, of Hearn and kind of the the inception and some of the work you've done in the past
1: yeah well uh, we have in Hebron, we have we get a lot of internationals uh, and a lot of volunteers who will usually will come. And, uh, you know, when you go to areas like Ramallah in the north or some other areas, you will find that um, you do not really see the occupation. You do not, uh, you know, for the most part in Ramallah, for example, you have the, the settlement is at the outskirts of the city, far away from the city centers so you you kind of uh, uh, if you are living there you know that what the occupation is but as a visitor you don't see that. And that doesn't happen in Hebron, for example. Once you go to the old city of Hebron, you will you will see it. You you actually see the settlers, you will see the army, you will see the kind of a, the iron fist in which the army is dealing with the Palestinians in uh, in these areas. So that actually prompted a lot of internationals to actually want to go from the phase of just coming to know about what's going on uh, into to a phase of, like, no, we need to do something about this. So it's actually the idea of of her and came up with uh, by myself and two other internationals one from Norway and the other one is from Sweden that we were very appalled by what is taking place and and we were into the position that you you cannot just write about it, you cannot just know about it, you really need to once you get that knowledge there is a responsibility for you upon you sorry in order for you to do something about it even though that is going to be the least amount but at least you are you are you're doing something about it so we had that idea of actually having to create a body in which that um, that can facilitate uh, very fast interventions and and this is actually I want to emphasize on fast because we do have international organizations that are working in the entire uh, West Bank and Gaza that are relief organizations. Uh, but from our experience is that those organizations with, with all due respect to their best of intentions, but their response comes very, very late. Uh, it takes a lot in order for a response to actually to take place. And we wanted to to make a way uh, uh, with all of these kind of bureaucracies in the middle to actually to make the impact much faster. And, you know, when, once you need it there and then, you actually you will be present into that. And I think our my understanding from the long history of, of HALN that actually we managed to do that because we do not have a specific mandate. Our mandate is, is just very broad in terms of just supporting the Palestinian steadfastness in these areas. And that actually uh, allows us to to buy cars, for example, to to selected family that lives beyond the checkpoint. Uh, You're not going to find any organization zero that is actually going to buy cars for 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 people sometimes we even pay dowries for people to get married so that they can stay in their in their homes we've built kindergartens schools with the least amount of bureaucracy whatsoever so i think that our records show that we are you know well, once we identify a problem maybe within a couple of days that problem is solved uh, and, and and the people will be able to continue their Life in a in a better, more dignified manner, which we, in comparison, you know, other organization that has much more money than than we have, um, that it will take them probably more than that, a lot more than that, actually to uh, to to make the intervention with restrictions on interventions. You know, they don't do everything, uh, but but for us, we are we we have no no problem of actually going into education, into health, into, uh, um, you know, wash, uh, water and and, and sanitation. Uh, Once we identify a problem, you know, we usually address it very, very fast because of lack of bureaucracy and because we are all volunteers. We, We do not have a head of office. We don't have a financial officer. We don't have an advocacy officer. We don't have a protection officer. None of these. We are just small group of people who will
0: are very very fast to to take decisions and implement them. Thank you, Mohammed. That sounds amazing. Can I pick up on um, a couple of kind of words you've used a few times now? You've talked about um steadfastness, and I know a little bit about kind of the the concept of um of samud in kind of in in Palestine. And you've also talked a bit about um uh, dignity as well. Because um, obviously, our connection uh, with you is we are as, as educators. So, I understand a lot of kind of Hearn's work and the stuff you do is is based around education specifically. So, could you talk a bit more about, um, I think, firstly, why, why education? Why is that something you do so much work around? And then a bit about the work you do?
1: Actually, thank you very much for this question. Um, as, as I alluded to earlier, Uh, We are really, uh, we do not have a specific mandate specifically for education, Um, and we are very much responsive to the needs of the population. And it so happened by pure, um, I wouldn't say by pure coincidence, is that all of the needs that are being requested from us are education-based. So it is actually kind of a, from the bottom up, you can see that how much the Palestinians, especially that are under occupation, value education that, you know, uh, we, we we put about 25 people to go to college every semester, every uh, three months, we pay for 25 students to go uh, to to college. And actually all of them are from areas that are located close to settlements and are threatened by demolitions, because that is by what's requested of, of us. If, if it so happened that they are requesting so many other things from us, we also reply to it, but actually it, it really is an example of how much the Palestinians, especially under occupation, do value education. That no, it is a must that for uh, for us to, uh, to con- as, as people under occupation to actually to continue our education and to get uh, uh, good degrees in order for us to, you know, down the road, we'll be able to uh, build our, uh, our society. And the good thing about it actually also that out of the 25, students that we uh, finance for uh, for college education, I would say about 20 uh, of them are women. And this is very also very refreshing, especially when you're, t- when you're talking about areas that are from Bedouin origins, uh, areas that are really in the, in the middle of nowhere, that they have they have that desire to actually to allow their women to actually to continue their education, but there's only that issue of, of payment for the school. And with that, we have no problem, you know, and uh, uh, trying to actually to, to pu- I wouldn't say push, but to meet the expectations of the population that their women will be able to get educated. And it, it is a personal conviction of mine that if you... Um, if you want to build a nation you educate their women uh, that's that's where the source men you'd usually will have it for uh, only Uh, a specific reason to to have a job and and to have some sort of an income, what have you. But if you're talking about women education, you're talking about the entire family being educated. If she gets married, for example, or she goes to work, which is, you know, more to it. But if she gets married and have their kids, the children, the children are going to be educated. She will have that better idea of how to... um, to improve the life of, of her kids. So definitely there is a big emphasis uh, on that from our side and also as well as a desire from the population themselves to continue their education. So this is why you see a large number of, of our uh, um, projects are aimed at education, not by our design, but by the, the request of the population. Thank you, Mohammed. Um, could you just talk a little bit about, um, I
0: suppose, what kind of opportunities there are, um, either in terms of kind of um, further education at university level, um, or opportunities for employment in the areas you work in.
1: Well, that's, uh, this is something that, that we cannot control, unfortunately. We are working um, in establishing kindergartens. Uh, sometimes we provide uh, desks. Sometimes we provide projectors uh, for the, uh, you know, the uh, kind of early education. Uh, we, we provide for people to go to college to continue their BA and some of them actually for their masters. But when it comes down to the issue of, uh, of employment, this is where we stop. To be honest, this is something that is that we cannot control. This is something that is of a problem for the entire society. You will have like about every year, the Ministry of Education, for example, they will open a, they will have an opening for about four hundred uh um, you know posts and that includes just you know administration, includes teachers and includes janitors and what have you. And you will have probably about more than five thousand people that are actually applying for this. Um so the possibility of getting a job afterwards, this is really is not it's out of control, our control. And actually this is why we get a lot of our students who will come back to us and say, hey listen, you know we've Uh, We went through those four years and it's not happening in terms of, uh, uh, you know, employment. So if we can, either that you can talk to somebody so he can employ us, you know, having some sort of a direct connection with the authorities, or if you have some uh, possibility of having us to continue our master's degree. So this is something that we always have to, to, um, to work with. Unfortunately, we cannot control that uh but you know we are we're providing as much space as possible to to create more and more chances for these people, and hopefully some will be able to uh, to to continue forward could you uh Mohammed,
0: talk a little bit more about um some specific um projects that HERN are involved in so i've um i've heard a little bit about um from from you speaking before when you 've spoken at um at our union branch meeting about um jubet al um al dib school rather
1: well, Gibbeted uh, Deep School is uh, it's a school that. Um, well, Gibbeted Deep community itself is actually located in east of uh, of Bethlehem, very close to um, a mountain called the Herodian, and this is where it's believed that the uh, King Herod is is uh, is buried, and with that, that has been uh, cre- uh, declared as an archaeological site uh, by the Israeli authorities. Of course, it is Area C. And because it is that close to the um, uh, to the to the uh, to the mountain, as well as very close to an outpost, very I mean, it's only about ten or twenty meters away from it, there's an Israeli outpost. That uh, there has been a lot of pressure on this uh, um, community not to flourish, not to, uh, um, you know, to expand uh, in an effort to actually to that within 20 or, or 30 years that the population would actually end up moving because there's no basic infrastructure there. There is no electricity at that point in 2017. We didn't have any electricity. There's always a problem with the with the water connection. There was no possibility of building, uh, no clinics, nothing in that that will support, you know, further life into that uh, into that village. And there was a a women committee that was formed that basically said enough is enough, and we want as women. to to end up uh, seeing how we're going to be able to uh, improve the the living conditions in the village. And one of the first things that they've uh, requested was a school. And uh, that was our fifth school that we've actually worked on. Um, We ended up with a piece of land. The community uh, gave us a piece of land, but the piece of land was really in the middle of uh, a field. Uh, the, one, the the way that we used to work before is that, that we'll be locating a land that is probably, a, there's a lot of houses around it so that while you're working, you know, nobody will see you working uh, because it's kind of a quote-unquote illegal. You're building without a permit in Area C. You need to get a permit from the Israeli authorities. And of course, they're not going to give you that. So uh, what is different about JBD was that um, the piece of land was really in in the valley and the military base that was in in the herodian in uh, uh, in the mountain can actually see everything of what is happening so it was a very very difficult endeavor to be honest but uh, we 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 played the cards that we that we were dealt and we started bit by bit trying to build the um, the school in that area uh, of course, we were stopped at least like four or five times. Uh, the good thing is that, that we had a contractor that knew all of these tricks. You know, the army will, will, will come in and tell them to stop. Otherwise, if you don't leave, we're going to confiscate all of your materials and what have you. So he would leave. And then once the army leaves and he comes back again and start to actually bit by bit, start to, uh, to, to make the puzzle coming together. Um, so uh, it so happened that uh, we finished the the building of that school on the 20th of August 2017, and the school was supposed to start on the 23rd of August. Uh, uh, of, of August. And we really did delay it so that it will, you know, that we build it and it will be occupied directly by the kids so that we will be able to uh, to kind of uh, stand against any measures by the Israeli authorities to demolish the school or what have you. So once it was built, uh, uh the 21st nothing happened, the 22nd nothing happens until about 5 pm uh, at night. one day before the school started, the army comes in and actually dismantles the whole the whole school because we made it out of uh, not out of bricks, but out of um, uh, uh, you know, zinc. This, this is you can just you know just put it next to each other and then the next thing you know you have a school, so they dismantled that one day before the school started, which was a really kind of a a big bummer for us. Uh, however, uh, school continued. The kids started to go to school. There was a tent. That was uh, set up in the same place where the school was as a a kind of a a sign that we are going to continue to to go to school in that area. And then one day, uh, I think it was on the 10th of September, that uh, overnight we ended up with about 30 or 40 volunteers from the community itself that actually brought in bricks, cement uh, and uh, you know sand and what have you and started actually overnight they rebuilt the whole school and they managed to actually to stop the Israeli army from uh, demolishing that while they were building it and we ended up getting some sort of a, an injunction from the high court from the Israeli high court saying that, okay, fine, now you've built it. Don't add anything to it until we decide what is going to be the fate of the school. So right now we are 2020 and the school is still up uh, and, and it has provided uh, education for at least, um, I would say 150 kids so far. And this is the, the this is the motto that we're working with. It's like, you know, you cannot just say, okay, well it is, it is illegal and we cannot do anything about it. Or that we know that, you know, once we build it, they're going to give us a, a demolition order. For, so far, so far, out of the seven schools that we've Built, all of them are actually still functioning. All of them are still. Um, all of them received demolition orders, but so far they are actually ongoing, providing uh, uh, services to the to the communities. And this is the maximum that you can uh, that you can hope for is that you know bit by bit that that uh, the the service will continue without you know it's it's not. It's not um, you know, uh, typical, or it's not the maximum that you want, but it's still, the service is being provided with this uh, tool that we're using. Thanks, Mohammed. With these kind of
0: um, threats of demolition orders, how how sudden do they take place, and what kind of is the is the threat level? How quickly can can these schools be taken away potentially?
1: usually, actually, we we had. Um, there is something called by the Israeli uh, authorities something called stop work order. And this is a stop work order that's being usually issued once they get to know that there is uh, something illegal, quote unquote, something that is, uh, did not get the necessary permits in order for them to, uh, you know, to, to, to build that legally. Uh, and people actually do build a lot without getting that permit. So the, the Israeli uh, army comes in and gives them something called stop work order. And that's good, quote unquote, uh, because that actually does give us the chance to go and object to that order. And once you object to it, basically the army cannot do anything about it until the, the legal process is taking place. And that legal process usually takes years. So once we actually get a stop work order, we're very happy about it, uh, because that means that it's frozen, that we can continue to to provide the service. We cannot add anything to it, but at least right now it's frozen and that process usually will take, you know, five, six years to do. Um, and that's, you know, at least, you know, in, in case God forbids a demolition happens, you can definitely say at the end that at least we provided six years of, of education for, for this community. Now, what is happening these days, especially since June 2018, and there is a, a departure by the Israeli army from, from using stop-work orders, they've devised a new order called Military Order 1797. And that has been used increasingly ever since. And that is basically basically a death sentence to any kind of a structure that is being, being built. Because once they issue a military order 1797, that gives you only 96 hours in order for you to get a permit. Not to get uh, uh, an attempt to get a permit. No, you actually need to show me a permit that this uh, uh, structure is uh, uh, is uh, uh, you know legal. It has it has a building permit. Otherwise, I can demolish. So they give you only four days to get a uh, a building permit, which is impossible to actually to do. So anytime that you get a uh, that military order, basically that within five days, you know that the structure is going to be demolished. So far they did not issue any of that of our schools, alhamdulillah, but it's increasingly, as being uh, documented by a lot of international organizations, that the army is actually increasingly using that method in order for them to stop uh, Palestinian buildings in, uh, in Area C. So, if we get some of those we're, we're dead, and so far, you know we're, you know we talked about a large number of houses that received that, especially in South Hebron Hills, and that ended up uh, uh, being demolished because of that order. Mm, thank you, Mohammed.
0: what kind of what i suppose if any um interactions do your projects have uh, uh with the with the settlers um what's the kind of the dynamic or the relationship there?
1: No, we we usually don't have any kind of a communication with the settlers. Um, the settlers are actually a very harmful element in in uh, in, in the in areas, especially in the areas in which that we are working, because they are very active. In 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 which that we have this organization called Regavim, uh, it's a it's a Jewish organization it's an Israeli organization far right. I would do believe that are working on the issue of having to safeguard you know the the lands of the city of Israel from Palestinian stealing that, that and, and what have you and with that they're very active in the areas that we are working on so they are they have uh, daily presence in the areas uh, they have uh, uh, what do you call it the uh, UAVs the unmanned Vehicles. Those um, they have drones that uh, usually they're uh, you know trying to photograph everything every like every week that they will go and use these things and then once they detect that there is an additional building that there is an attempt by the Palestinians to improve their lives like with. uh, with a, an agricultural road, with building a cistern, with building a kindergarten, that will directly be reported to the to the Israeli army, and the Israeli army comes in and then gives you that one seven nine seven military order. So there is a, a very big uh, coordination that is taking place uh, between Rigavim and its members, and we know that the, uh, some of their members are actually settlers from the settlements that we are. Working around, uh, and 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 with that, they are uh, always trying to inform the army that not only inform it, but actually even to push for it. And just you know, just a, a side note: Regavim is, is the uh, organization that is pushing the army in the Jordan Valley to to demolish Al Khan Al Ahmar. Um, and uh, they went to the High Court, and uh, they were pushing the High Court to ask the army, why is it? that they are not implementing the demolition order that was issued by the high court. So not only that they are trying to say, okay, this is where the army and the army is going to take care of it. No, they're actually pushing the army to actually go see, okay, why is it that you're not demolishing here? Why is it that you're not demolishing there? You issued a military order for this demolition. How come that's still on? So they are really kind of providing the information for the army. Some of the army units are much more responsive, like I think the ones that we have in the South Hebron Hills because there's a lot of demolition that took place here in the past year, despite of the pandemic. And uh, that's largely due to the, uh, uh, to the efforts of, uh, of Rigavim. Um, so they are um, they are in a fight with the Palestinian presence in, in, uh, uh, in those areas and we are trying even before them, even before they were present, we're trying to actually support it. So we are kind of a, in an indirect battle with them, if you can, if you can say that. What projects, uh,
0: Mohammed um, is are HEARN working on at the moment? And in particular, you, you made reference to the pandemic. What impact has COVID had, had on your work and your operations at the moment?
1: Um, well, I think, uh, you know, again, because we are very elastic, we are very... Uh, uh, kind of a try to adapt to this to the circumstances that uh, that we are in. Um, health was never okay, okay. It was never too high on our priority uh, as uh, as as her. We 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 actually did finance a uh, a clinic in in Terumade area, which is under a lot of Israeli pressure. So we were very. Uh, but that was in 2017. But this year we actually end up having to. Um, kind of a shift some of our priorities to respond to the pandemic. So we actually did respond in, in three different ways. Uh, in, in March and April, we had a, a very major lockdown uh, that did not allow anybody to move out of their, uh, their houses and what have you. Uh, and we got to know that some of the communities uh, that are uh, basically stuck between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli authorities, like in, in, the, in the envelope around Jerusalem, that they were unable to actually to go into Bethlehem, for example, so that they can go and buy their uh, needs. At the same time, the Israelis are not allowing them to go into Jerusalem because they don't have the right IDs in order for them to access Jerusalem. So we got to know about these guys and uh, um, and we were told that they need some help regarding uh, food parcels. So we did that. We provide them at least with two rounds of food parcels to about 10 families in these areas, just to make sure that within the pandemic, within the closure that they have enough money, uh, sorry, enough food. And also we managed to distribute uh, at least twice uh, hygiene kits. Two areas that are very close to the settlement of Kriyat Arba, uh, that other organizations got to know that we are working in these areas and they tapped into our resources and we managed to distribute that on on their behalf. Uh, The second intervention was actually on a much higher level. We were in cooperation with the Ministry of Health. That we actually did face a, a, a crisis in terms of the number of ventilators uh, that are not present in uh, in the West Bank. So we've actually managed with uh, to uh, to be part of a, of a larger uh, uh consortium, let's say, of Palestinian Hebronites that are from the United Arab Emirates, from Turkey, from China, uh, business people, people who are on the ground, people who are with medical uh, experience, that we managed to actually to uh, fundraise uh, to actually to get at least 25 uh ventilators and that's you're talking about each one of them is about7500 dollars each. We managed as her to contribute four. While the others actually managed to contribute the other eleven, so we, you know, with that we ended up having to actually to increase the capacity of the Ministry of Health to actually to deal with uh, with cases, and I think right now they are uh, they are very much in use because we are, you know, on the top level at this point of number of of uh, COVID. Uh, uh, cases, and the last intervention is actually right now is taking place, is that because of the uh, the pandemic, we ended up with closures of schools since March. And that did affect specifically the kids that are in first grade and second grade, um, who used to be first grade, second grade, and third grade, that they are at the very basic uh, level. And right now, they, because they miss that much school, they don't know how to read, they don't know how to write, they don't know how to recognize letters. So currently, we are actually holding in the South Urban Hills, as well as in the old city of Hebron, on weekly basis, twice a week, uh, we're paying for volunteers to come and and work with the children, uh, uh, especially from second grade and third grade and above uh, on on the, the skills that they have had, that they have to have. Uh, uh so that they can make it in when uh, when the school starts again that they can actually be in a in a good standing so we're trying to concentrate on that at this point just to make sure that they're not because that's going to screw up their lives if they if they don't get the basics at this point so we're trying to see what the community wants from us and uh, we try to respond as as fast as possible to that and this is exactly what the community wanted
0: mm. thank you mohammed um I suppose you've talked a bit about Hearn being a kind of a really responsive um, organisation really with um, obviously having an impact on the ground rather than being a bureaucracy and I suppose in terms of kind of the, the constant threats you're under um, from the authorities, um, to what extent do you have kind of plans for the future and, and what are your plans to, to grow the organisation going forward?
1: To be honest, we are, we are with the um the, the long, the long-term goal of the organization is to support the Palestinians on the ground. That we can make them as much as possible, provide as many opportunities for them to grow and to live in a dignified, dignified manner. So this is the long-term. This is the kind of a, the umbrella uh, goal under which that we're working. But uh, if if I'm going to say that we have like a, a plan for next year, I will be lying. We are day to day. Uh, because planning in Area C, uh, where, where most of our, uh, um, you know, targeted population are, uh, is, is very, very difficult because you cannot imagine what might take place. So we are trying as much as possible day to day, trying to, because the idea is to provide hope on a daily basis. That, you know, yes, if I'm going to, I cannot change... The kind of a, the the policy of the U.S. Congress towards the Palestinian Authority. I cannot change the policy of the EU uh, that that they will be able to actually to stop the expansion of settlements. Which I think, you know, on on on, on a higher level, this needs to be done in order for us to, for to solve this entire issue. But because I cannot change that, some other people are working on that. You know, some people that have much closer uh, relationship to the Congress, Uh, people that uh, are responsive to their MPs, for example, they can actually take our message and tell them you need to be able to pressure Israel a little bit more. So other people are doing this, while on the ground, I think our mission is actually to provide hope on a daily basis. If I'm going to be able to create a kindergarten so that this kid, a six-year-old or a five-year-old will be able to actually to go to a kindergarten and get, you know, the very basics so he can actually have a better life down the road, that I can do, and this is why I'm going to actually to do that, because this is something that, you know, is, is within my reach, within my skills, that I can do this thing. But having to, uh, to plan for the next like five years that this community is going to have this and this and that in Area C, it's, it's, um, it's, not, it's not doable and it's not, uh, I think that would be a waste of my time to actually to kind of envision something that might not take place. While things on the ground on daily basis, I can, I can concentrate on this. So, yes, we have an overall goal that we are working on it, but it is like really having to put small pieces together to actually to reach that, that bigger goal.
0: I suppose this might be, um, I suppose, my final question here is what can we do um, in the UK as educators, as, tra- as trade unionists, and what can people do internationally to support you and to support her and, and the Palestinian people more generally?
1: Well, it's, um, you know, you still need to talk to your MPs. You're definitely, and I know uh, that maybe it's going to be a little bit harder right now, especially after what took place to the, um, uh, to the Labour Party and, and Jeremy Corbyn and all of the, the, the suspensions that are taking place uh, just because you are, you're pro-Palestinian. So it's probably going to be getting, uh, there's a, a battle uh, in, in front of you within, within the UK. But... Uh, I think it is very, very crucial that, you, that we continue that fight, that, that to, to bring the voice. Uh, there used to be a lot of international, because the pan, before the pandemic, used to actually to come to, to, to Hebron and, and to Bethlehem and see what's going on and then go back and kind of a report back to their MPs or, or to their uh, you know, supporters and what have you. Now that that is lacking, uh, uh, the Palestinians feel that their voices are not heard. Uh, and uh, I, I really kind of uh, uh, urge you to actually to continue some of these Zoom meetings with the Palestinians on the ground because they feel you know, of course, uh, they feel abandoned, not because of, uh, you know, a planned abandonment, but this this pandemic has has had that effect on it. So we still need to actually to continue to look at these people, to, to tell them at least that we are listening, that your agony and your suffering is not going in vain. I know that, you know, even when the internationals were here, when they come into a, a house where it was demolished or it was, a settler have, has attacked it, the Palestinians there know that this international, is not going to be able to help them out immediately. They're not going to actually to come in and rebuild the house for them immediately, which is what's what's needed. But at least they know that there is somebody is listening to that and somebody is going to carry that message or that voice back to the decision makers, back to some people who will be able to kind of influence the overall. This is missing at this point in time. And I think that, you know, having to actually to get back with these people is very essential. Now, when it comes down to uh, to Hearn, as like I said, you know Hearn is, is 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 very unique uh, in terms of that it does not have that kind of a hierarchy of uh, that is needed. Uh, by other organizations, so that they can finance it. You know, the uh, people uh, or organizations, donor organizations, will need to have a, a financial system. They need to have receipts. They need to have reports. They need to have, you know, assessments and all, and all of that. By design, we're not gonna do because we. This is wasting our time. We are trying to, to put up a system that will take too much of our time to prove to another bureaucrat that we are doing okay and this is why we are deserving to be, to be uh, funded. We, by design we're not going to do this because we want to be closer to the population rather than closer to bureaucrats. So this means that actually our organization is not um, uh, donor-able. Key. Organized, donor organizations cannot actually provide that, any kind of a finance uh, for us uh, because we do not have that response mechanism uh, to them. So, yeah, so we depend uh, mostly on, uh, on, on donation, individual donation, sometimes churches donate to us because they know the work that we're doing, they've seen the work that we're doing, not because of some report. So yeah, we we depend mostly on donations. We have a very close relationship with the Amos Trust that they are handling all of our donations in the UK. So yeah, if if people can donate to us, that would be really, really great. And make sure that actually 110% of that money that is being donated goes directly into work on the ground. We are all volunteers. We don't get paid. We don't have a hierarchy that we need to pay. So all of that goes directly into uh, into the field.
2: Um, Yeah, we will obviously be putting um, links in the description and we encourage both individuals and people's, you know, union groups or if if you've got access to any fundraising, uh, we would heartily encourage, you know, donations to the the Amos Trust. Um, I believe both, um, certainly Bristol. uh, I mean, in fact, Tom, do you want to just quickly summarise what we've been up to on that
0: level? level? Um, Yeah, sure, absolutely. Thank you, Lee. Uh, Yeah, so kind of... um, we, as kind of as trade unionists in the national education union, we first um, uh, met you, Mohammed um, through um, a fund that was set up in honor of um, a fantastic uh, South west of England trade unionist called nina franklin who uh, who sadly died earlier this year so um, yeah, another thing we can put in the link of the description to this show is um, details about the nina franklin fund, um, which is the bristol Palestine education link which um, as Mohammed you already talked about, and um, we we decided to kind of make sure we can get as much money, as much kind of union funds and other funds that we can raise directly to Hearn, because I think yeah, I think firstly the story um, of Hearn and what Hearn is doing on day to day is incredibly inspiring, and I think it's important that the money is is really tangible and material, and we can see where that money is going. It's going to actually improve people's day to day existence. It's not being spent on some huge huge bureaucracy. So that's kind of our yeah.
1: We're definitely we're definitely on on the same page on that one, and actually we've already built uh, as uh, four uh, classrooms in honor of uh, Nina Franklin in El Majaz School. That's already been uh, done the first phase. And as we speak right now, we went there yesterday, you know, even though it was raining. We went there to the location and the second phase is already actually taking place in terms of having to uh, put up the windows and the uh, the doors and the tiles and what have you now is taking place, and we're hoping that within uh, within like three weeks we should be able to actually to final to finish the whole thing. And once that is done with the inauguration, we're going to put a plaque that uh, has the Nina Franklin uh, picture and um, you know a quote or something you know in dedication to uh, to her life. We'll definitely send that uh, to you first to, to get an agreement on the. Uh, uh, on the plaque itself. And then after that, we will definitely put that on on uh, on those four uh, classrooms. Additionally, we are actually going to be working within the next 10 days or so on a uh, a garden in a, another school that we built after it was demolished three times. We rebuilt it and so far it's standing. We're going to uh, do a garden there in dedication of, of memory also. So we're hoping that this is by the, by the maybe end of January that that will also be operational. Fantastic that's
0: wonderful news Mohammed. that's uh, yeah that's really great and really really I think I've used the word a lot um, in this interview but yeah it's really inspiring I feel at the moment we're all kind of feeling very very isolated but it's just really nice to know that kind of that spirit of international solidarity is still there obviously we can't visit uh, the West Bank that easily. We can't send out delegations, trade union delegations and the like. But um, uh, it's just wonderful to know that kind of we can still have an impact and we can still support support the Palestinians.
2: The one thing you said that really uh, resonated with me is that you use the phrase that, that um, once you know what Life is like for Palestinians. You, you have, you know, you have a duty to act. You have a duty to speak up, and I think that actually summarises how most uh, British leftists feel on the Palestine issue once you realise what it's like to be a teacher in Palestine once you realise what it's like to be a student or just to be any person living under those constraints and living with that structural violence and the sort of the threat that your school might be here today and might be gone tomorrow and yet you still see the possibilities you still take a pragmatic view on doing what is possible um it's just it's it speaks to something quite central about the human condition and something again to overuse tom's word it's inspiring i i i feel uplifted to know that there are people out there choosing consciously to live in that manner so i just want to say a huge thank you for sharing your experiences and doing 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 the work that you do because um it, obviously there's no comparison between life in Britain and life in Palestine but there is uh, a, a need for solidarity and for people to to hold each other up and and show the way so that's that's really why i feel that this interview and the work that you do is so hugely important i guess uh, there's, there's there's no real question off the back of my comment but yeah i just find it a, a very resonant and uh, you know a, a set of words that can mean a lot of people across borders.
1: There we are, and especially thank you for for that. And especially actually during these times, during these times that uh, of of the pandemic, that uh, basically shook up the uh, um, the kind of a, the humanitarian condition of everybody. Uh, and and started to actually to see that things are getting you know much more pressure, um, you know, in the worldwide. But when it comes down to the to the to the Palestinians, there's there's so many different layers that we've definitely there's a a, um, a report that came out by OCHA saw a marked increase in in demolition that took place in two thousand and and, uh, uh, to tw- to 2020. Um, and they you know kind of uh, show you exactly which months and all of these things, so that there is. Even a, 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 you have a pandemic, and then you have an increased violations by, by the Israelis, and uh, of course income has you know dropped, and a lot of people are feeling the crunch, and to actually to come in through that time and actually say that no, no, we're still with you, we're still seeing what is going on, we're still, you know, trying to push with you on on this issue. I think that by itself has has a, a really good uplifting and supportive. Uh, uh, you know, mode to it that will allow the Palestinians actually to continue on their day-to-day uh, hardships. So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's very much needed, it's very much appreciated, and uh, at the same time, we're also very aware of what is taking place in the UK. Um, and and with that, I always, you know. Uh, try to support our friends who from the Labour Party who were being uh, disqu- you know, uh, kicked out uh, and, and try to actually to even to support them back that we are still with you, we're standing by you even though that we have our own problems but you know, it's, um, we're all in this, it's a universal battle it seems like and whatever we can do on a daily basis is going to help out in, in this battle.
2: Um, so I have one final comment that is an actual question, and I think it is a difficult question. Uh, but one thing, Mohammed, that you said that, again, really struck with me is that... Um your organisation and you personally you don't allow yourself to be discouraged by what might happen you know the idea that um, you can always imagine the worst case scenario and for for a lot of people certainly uh, people on the left in Britain at the moment um, they do allow themselves to be discouraged by what might happen we've seen this in a recent battle over uh, school closures because our our union was demanding uh, quite sensibly in order to control the pandemic, that we move to remote learning, online teaching and, uh, you know, just just get less kids in school to bring the infection rates down. And uh, so many people, including, well, the the leadership of our union and a lot of members, they saw the threats of the government because there were and have been direct legal threats against schools that tried to close early. Um, You know, there is a huge culture of bullying from the Prime Minister on down in this country, especially with our school inspector at Ofsted. And and I'm afraid a lot of people in in our country, they do allow themselves to be discouraged by what might happen. And I guess my question to you, and this is why it's a difficult question, Mohammed, is... how do you stop yourself being discouraged by what might happen is is there some lessons that we could take away to, to to allow us to imagine what's possible and not not always allow that worst case scenario to limit our actions
1: you're right it is it is kind of a difficult question uh, i think because i i work uh, on, on a micro level to be honest uh, you know i'm i'm uh, I've come to the point, and again, this is not—I've uh, allowed myself the freedom to do that. Um, others might have a problem with this, especially when you come down to like heads of unions and then policy makers and what have you. But I actually have come to a point that I've uh, centrally have agreed that there are some things that I cannot change that uh, in order for you to actually to change it is going to take a lot of effort and a lot of skills that I might not have as an individual. Uh, And with that, rather than having to actually to beat my head uh, against the wall, I shifted towards something that I can do. Something that within the skills that I have, within the connections that I have, within the English language that I have, will be able to actually to muster enough Resources to be able to allow this kid to go to to kindergarten, um, so I'm I, I lower kind of a uh, my my expectations uh, to to the things that say okay, you know, I we still can get these people to go to college. I cannot control if they're going to be employed or not, but at least that they actually can down the road have that tool, have that weapon, have that possibility of actually getting a job after they graduate. So we we don't, you know, again, we don't look down the road all the way down the road, um, but we have that uh, kind of an umbrella uh, uh, goal, but we work on day to day basis. We try to improve on daily basis what can happen to people. Now, having said that, that does not mean that we do not get that uh, you know uh, discouraged. Uh, you can probably go back to some of the emails that I sent when you were talking about the annexations, or when when the United Arab Emirates actually formalized its relationship with with Israel, or on the 25th of uh, November when we had massive demolitions in in uh, in when you just say you know you know, we give up. You know, this is a, a systemic policy that is taking place and is, you know, with all of the money and all of the weaponry and with all of the tools that they have, they are very much insisting on uprooting the Palestinian presence in that area, only to find us the very next day in the field, visiting some of those caves that have been, de- uh, uh, houses that have been demolished, and to find that the guy is trying to go back to his cave. So we actually ended up renovating his, uh, his cave and we gave him a, uh, a lantern, a mobile lantern, uh, lantern. And we gave him a lot of, uh, we plowed his land and we ended up giving him uh, saplings so he can actually grow things on the ground so he can stay in that area. So yes, you have that, uh, you know, possibility of being discouraged because it, it is a, a, a very well-oiled machinery that is aimed at uprooting the Palestinians from these areas, and that does get to you, especially when you see it, the demolition happening in front of you. Uh, but only for a short period that you can actually pick up and continue to actually uh, to continue the fight. Um, so. I think you have to always to look for the silver lining in the cloud. You have to always to say, okay, now that this happened, how can we, you know, go around that? And then you will see that a lot of people are actually behind you. Uh, once we go into the field, it's not just me being in the field, but it's going to be me, Lee, Tom, uh, uh, Veronica, uh, uh, Jeffrey, all of these people who are not physically present with me, but I know that their prayers are with me, that when I go back and say, okay, this is what we need, you will find somebody who's going to say our prayers with you, or somebody's going to say, here, this is 500 pounds, go and do this. So it's uh, you have to be a little bit more imaginative that it's not only the union, it's the union with all of its members that are really behind you on this, and this is where we get our powers and, and encouragements.
2: Um thank thank you for that, Mohammed. Um I, you know, if if more people everywhere could take a pragmatic view of what they can control and can't control but act on it, we would have a much stronger organised union. We would have, you know, community unions being able to fight back against their landlords. You know, things would improve in our country. And if if yourself and everyone involved in Hearn and the Palestinian cause can find the inspiration to get up and, and do something every day, then the least we can do is try and match you. You know, so th- thank you for your insight there. I know that was a difficult question. Sorry.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Mohammed. Um It's really nice to kind of have this interview towards the end of 2020. It was a very, very difficult year. But at the very least, I feel inspired to kind of look at your example and... Uh, and the way you kind of conduct yourself and the way HEARN operates and kind of take that into, into into my trade union, into my workplace and into my community. So, yeah, I'll just end on saying thank you again. And if you have any final words, um, I will, I'll leave the final word with you, Mohammed.
1: It's just that we are really in this all together. We, I mean, it is... Yes, you are in the UK and we are here in Palestine Israel. Well. But I think the, um, the fight against, you know, a common set of ideologies that does not recognize the other, does not uh, allow the other to actually to, to be present, uh, and with that, because it's a common fight, uh, we're uh, we're hoping that we can pull resources together so we can fight it in, in, in the different battle grounds that, that we have by being very practical by doing things on the ground that will able to have specifically dignity for those that are oppressed. And this is the 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 main main battle that we are having. Here. Thank you, Mohammed. Shall we
0: pause it there? Leave it there, Lee. So, uh, me and Tom thought we would
2: uh, have some reflections on the discussion that we had with Mohammed. Um Clearly, there is a lot there that educators in the UK can take away from, and there's also, you know, as, as we've discussed in the interview, there is a, a duty upon all of us, especially in the current conditions, to not let this issue go. Um, I think... One thing I wanted to reflect on and discuss with my co-host Tom at this particular juncture is, is, is why Palestine? Because this seems to be the, 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 one of the battlegrounds upon which uh, the UK left finds itself, uh, particularly within the Labour Party um obviously with the current uh well controversy uh, around uh, anti-semitism within the labour party uh, expressing solidarity with the palestinians uh, has come under attack um the policing of language the policing of tone and i guess i'll invite tom to respond to my question to him you know um what why is it important that we're aware of what is happening in palestine and showing solidarity and material support um, to educators and indeed all people in the occupied territories.
0: Um, Yeah, and I think that's a very good point. I suppose it's with the Palestinians. The Palestinians themselves, I think, and um, I think Mohammed was a great example of the the concept of Samud, of steadfastness, of having a clear sighted understanding of what has been done to you, the dispossession that you have fallen victim to and the continued dispossession and the continued concerted efforts. I mean, Mohammed you refer to the well-oiled machine, which is designed very specifically to get you to leave your home and to leave and to drive you and your family and your community from where you are materially rooted. Um, I think, yeah I think the word the word I used a lot can seem kind of a bit of a trite word is is inspirational but I think Mohammed's, what he does what his organization does in and of itself is inspirational also I think the kind of his attitude and his outlook is is very important as well and I think in the last few episodes of requires improvement we 've talked about um we obviously, we, we rage against dreadful, dreadful politicians, whether it's West Street, Michael Gove, Lord Adonis, whoever it might be. And I think there is that kind of, that temptation almost to get kind of just get angry about it and to just rant and moan and be annoyed. But I think what I've taken away from 2020 more broadly is the idea that that's not kind of healthy or that's not productive. And I think... What I've taken away from the interview with Mohammed is to just kind of reaffirm that idea is to not just get angry, not to vent, not to rant as useful as that might be at times, but to just kind of have a really clear-sighted focus of okay, these are the conditions we are under, this is what we are faced with, this is these are the obstacles in our workplace, in our profession, in our community. These are the conditions worldwide, whether that's in Palestine or America or wherever it might be. Okay, this is where we're at. Now, what do we do about it? How do we organize? How do we work together to wrestle something good? out of the, the terrible things we are faced with. So I think that's that's kind of what I took away from from the interview specifically. And I think that's why why the Palestinians and Palestine does matter and and will always matter until they have some semblance of justice and, and resolution to to the conflict that's been going on um for decades now. Because I think it is the Palestinians but it's not just them. They are they represent people all throughout history who have been dispossessed who have been marginalized who have had concerted efforts to silence them and to consign them to history and they're they're still here they're still resisting and they're not going anywhere
2: I I completely agree with everything you said Tom um I mean uh we keep raising on on this podcast, the theme of decolonization, uh, of the need to write inclusive histories that address, you know, uh, disappeared voices, marginalized histories. And I don't think you can find a more resonant example than the plight of the Palestinians. Um, if we're going to decolonize our lessons, uh, we should address uh, colonizations that are currently in progress. Um, now, I think that what I've just said will be very controversial to some Uh, to, to, to describe the activities of the state of Israel as a settler colonial project is disputed territory, I'm afraid to say. But I think there's only one right answer, which is that Israel, when in its activities in the occupied territories, is behaving as a settler colonial, ex- you know, as a, a settler colonial enterprise, because the objective, as as Tom's already highlighted, and as the interview with Hamid makes plain the 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 state of israel would like to cleanse these lands of the palestinian people and that it is a testament to the palestinians that they have simply by surviving they have resisted this to this date in spite of an actual worsening of these conditions during our lifetime because you know the situation was already well in play before any of us listening to this podcast was born um but you know uh, I, I, the the lack of any substantive teaching about this issue in the in the national curriculum I, I also think the complexity of it is a is a genuine barrier um, to, to to a lot of educators including myself in that you can tie yourself up in knots trying to do justice to the nuance and the complexity and the the long duration of this history but it's no coincidence that when they you well, know when the conservative government of 2010 reformed the gcse curriculum uh there was there used to be an option to do the Arab-Israeli conflict for GCSE coursework. Uh, That went in the bin, um, didn't pass Michael Gove's quality test. Um, But, you know, there are structural reasons why these these kind of histories are not addressed. And I think, you know, that's why it's so important we carry on with the decolonisation stuff, because we can try and bring some light to the struggles of of oppressed peoples and, and the Palestinians... Are surely deserving of that. Uh, but I guess another thing I wanted to reflect on with Tom is uh, this idea of dignity. Uh, and again, it links to what you were saying: that 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 value of steadfastness. Um, one of the most admirable things about what activists and organizers like Muhammad are doing is that they are just trying to raise people's expectations about their own lives and, and give people uh, a sense of expectation and entitlement to basic dignity. Now there is no comparison to be made we're not we're not here in the suffering olympics and the life of you know educators and indeed even the poorest people in the uk cannot compare to someone who lives under an economic blockade a military occupation and and a a bureaucratic and military and administrative apparatus designed to suppress the growth of your society there is no comparison there i'm not going to make that crass comparison but there is uh a need everywhere from america to the uk to palestine to the remote areas of russia there is a need on the left to raise people's basic expectations of their own entitlement and their dignity on the daily o and this is what every successful civil rights movement has sought to address. There's a reason that, you know, Gandhi tackled the everyday issue of, like, assault tax. There's a reason uh, Martin Luther King and his, you know, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, they they addressed the issue of buses first because it's about your daily life and that expectation of dignity. So, Tom, I don't know if you've got any reflections about, you know, what can UK educators be asking for or agitating around or you know what issues do we have to address in terms of basic dignity and expectations not just for staff but also
0: for students as well yeah I think before we talk about the specifics we can focus on I think yeah I do want to take a moment to reflect on that point and I think that's something that came up again and again in the interview with Mohammed he talks about dignity and um in kind of steadfastness, uh, but these ideas can be seen as quite like abstract ideas. But I think what I like about Mohammed's work is that it's focused on on the material. And um, we did an event quite recently with the uh, Tenants Union Acorn in bristol and the thing i took away from the acorn event um was that i thought was very interesting that their focus is on it's on the material and the the language they use a lot is the idea of self-interest and i think um that can be seem to be a bit of an odd thing for a lot of people to talk about we're meant to be kind of these selfless socialists everything for everyone and nothing for ourselves um but i think yeah if we're trying to engage people in and building like a massive majoritarian project and a project that's actually going to win it has to be rooted in in people's material existence and ultimately in our self-interest, it's a basis of I'm going to sacrifice some of my time, some of my energy, some of my money in the here and now with a reasonable expectation that down the line in the future, my life will be better. Not the life of just other people or people over there or people I have no connection to, but my life rooted in my workplace, in my community. And I think that's something... Um, I took took away from the interview with Mohammed. I think, yeah, particularly of the issue of Palestine and the left and and the Labour Party and all of that. We can get we can get tired up in these kind of semantic nuances. Um, so, I, I, um, but I found the interview refreshing. Is it's like let's forget about all all of these kind of abstract discussions or or the policing of language or whatever that might be and be like, here is a group of people, this is what is happening to them, this is what they are subjected to, the daily grind of the existence of living in Area C of the Palestinian West Bank. It's incontrovertible, It's, it's happening, these people are there, these people exist in a rooted material reality... Okay, that's where we're at. What do we do about it? What can we do on on the day today? And I asked Mohammed about, well, what are your plans for the future? And a bit of a silly question on my part. Like, we don't know what the future brings, but we know what we can do today to, as best as we can, to the best of our ability, affect a better future. And that's why I, I really, really enjoy that interview and think it's a nice, a very suitable, appropriate final episode of of what's been a very, very tough year.
2: Yeah, and I guess my final reflections on this is that I just wanted to heavily underscore the universality of the struggle which the Palestinians face. Now, we all don't live under military occupation. Uh, Again, the, the, the comparison is vulgar. I'm not trying to make it. But the very same forces of capital and ideology that permit the Palestinian occupation by the state of israel to take place so we're talking about you know the ideological cover provided by academics and politicians and journalists we're talking about the financial funding and the military weapons and gear and armor provided by you know the military industrial complex the, you know these forces of capital are massive they are transnational they are extremely right wing they are all grounded in a, a rejection of the other a, a denial about the fundamental humanity of all humans Um, our struggle is theirs and their struggle is ours and it it, you know this this interview has just affirmed that for me have you got any final thoughts then tom to wrap this one up
0: um yeah i suppose it it just brings it back to to what what i said before really it's about the focus of kind of organizing and organizing for a purpose like we can we can get angry or we can do something about it. And I think that's, that's the big lesson to take away from what Hearn, Hearn and Mohammed are doing right now. I mean, a lot of, kind of, if you can think throughout, certainly our lifetime, um, when you think about Palestine, um, events like Operation Cast Lead, I can remember that very, very vividly in my mind um, from what would be about 12 years ago now, and obviously before that, other events, notably the Iraq War, there were always clips, and you 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 see people, and it does seem you've always got the screen between you creating that 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 distance between you as a westerner, um, as a as a white British person, and the other, as 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 Mohammed referred to the people over there. And there's always that kind of I always remember it being like, oh, we need the West to see this. The West need to know about this. And I think we're at the stage now that the West does know about it. Like, it's not a case of these things are secret, these things are unknown, they're hidden, and if we just bring it to the light of day and if we just present the facts to the great liberal masses, then then magically things will change and improve. Like, the West does know, the world does know about all of these scandals, all of these crimes, and the West, in the main part, particularly those in power, doesn't give a shit. So... We're beyond that now. It's not about just about knowing, because we do know and we've known for a long time what has been happening. The question now is, yeah, so what, what do we do about it? And I think that's the kind of, that's the analogy, the comparison we can draw, however crass it may or may not be, with with our situation as educators in the UK. It's like, oh, have you seen this latest terrible thing uh, the UK government has done? Have you seen this latest terrible directive? It's like, yeah, it's pretty much the same as the the ones they had two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Yeah, so what? Now what? Ultimately.
2: Yeah, and I, I think I... I want to recommend uh, a book that I've been reading and returning to uh, over certainly the last six months to a year. It's a very short book. It's uh, by a guy called Tom Spurlinger. Uh, he works at Bristol University, professor in English. Um, but basically, he wrote a little book uh, about his experience of being an English teacher at a sort of A level, undergrad level, um, at a university in in the occupied territories. Um, and the thing I take away from that book is that students are students and uh obviously the students of the west bank and the occupied territories deal with problems in their daily life that are almost unimaginable to us but they respond to a good teacher in the way that students in the uk do and uh it's a test of your skills as an educator to sort of try and uh get the best out of them and make them reflect make them sort of um well just understand the human condition uh, in a more deep and reflective way um so you know if you guys want to read an account of what it's like to be a, an educator in, in in Palestine that would be a good place to start I'm sure there is a, a massive array of books that are probably longer and more substantive but you know hey uh, as a place to start why not why not check out that book uh, we will be hopefully uh, approaching Tom Spuringer for an interview in a future episode <laughs>
0: Yeah, and we can end on, I'm reading a book at the moment, uh, slightly longer, by Ariella Aisha Azoulay, uh, an Israeli academic called Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. And, yeah, I'm about probably halfway through. I think it's about 500 pages. It's quite, I'm just holding it up on the screen now for you you there, Lee. Um, I'll lend it to you when when I'm done with it. But, um, yeah, it's fantastic. She talks a lot about kind of the the role of, of the archive and how archives are presented as as neutral, as the neutral arbiter of what is history. And she talks about kind of the the implicit violence in the archive and the role of the archive in basically consigning people whether they're individuals or communities or in in some cases entire nations to history as in you are not a living breathing people anymore you are you are an archived people um so i I i find this a really interesting way when we've talked about decolonizing the curriculum and we have a decolonizing history um whatsapp group for example i'll be recommending this book to that group because i think it's a useful way to kind of just remind ourselves that we need to have front and centre when we when we teach about people. We teach even about the past. We need to centre humanity in that, and the humanity and the commonality of all people. Um, there are there are not others. We're, we it is, we are all the same people ultimately. So it's a nice, suitably flowery point to end on there. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you've had, let's um, say, an interesting. Um, informative 2020 and here's hoping 2021 will be uh, substantially better for for all of us. Um, So yeah, um, have a good one and have a happy new year. I've been Tom. I've been Lee. Fantastic. And we've been Requires Improvement. Take care. Bye-bye.